на трибунах олеют знамена, Облака под небесни плывут. На зеленом ковре стадиона разноцветные майки цветут. Hello and welcome back to the Russian Football News Podcast. Both the RPL and European football returned since our last regular pod, and it's been quite the week. Loco battled hard to another brilliant result, drawing 0-0 away in Madrid, while Zenit and Krasadov both unfortunately eliminated from the Champions League after losses to Lazio and Sevilla, respectively. We've also got a Moscow derby to unpack, some controversy surrounding Stanislav Chechesov's interview, in which he vehemently lambasted players in his squad while defending his current record, and some boardroom shuffles at Spartak. Once again, Tatarstan's favourite Englishman, David Sanson's back. Evening, James. Good to be back. And this week, we're also joined by a special guest, match premier commentator and expert broadcaster, Misha Polinov. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me. I'm a little bit nervous and I want to... I'm sorry in advance for maybe making some lame mistakes or something. I'm sorry. (laughs) Of course, no worries. And So, Misha, for some of our English and American listeners who and from elsewhere, not Russia, who may not be able to watch much Premier elsewhere in the world. Could you give us a quick summary of your work on Russian football and, and what you do and who you are on TV and so on? Uh, well, uh, yes, I'm a sports journalist. I work for a Russian satellite uh, channel. It's uh, both satellite and national sports channel. It's called Match TV. I've been uh, working as a sports journalist for... Uh, 15 years already, almost. Uh, I mostly cover Russian Premier League and uh, Spanish League, uh, Spanish Primera and the European Cups and all the major tournaments that uh, happen worldwide. So, uh, but Ru- Russian Premier League, of course, is my is the major tournament for me. Nice. So, how does you say you've been doing it for 15 years now? Uh, sorry. Is that 15 years? You said you've been doing it for now. Yeah. Yeah, it started in uh, early to, uh, to uh, 2006. Right, and you also do, uh, have a podcast as well, aside from the Match TV work, I believe. Yeah, I do. I actually love podcasts very much, you know. I don't know why, but it's kind of a, <laughs> it does have some kind of a magic for me. Yeah, it's a little bit of freedom on, your, on, on the side. And, and for some of our Russian listeners or those who can speak Russian, what is the name of the podcast, Misha? Uh, it's called uh, Balete za Svaich. It's you uh, it can be translated into English something like "Support your local team." And besides that, mm-hmm. I have one more. Uh, it's called the Zvuki Futbola Sounds of Football. So I do. I have two podcasts actually. Oh, perfect! So yeah, guys, for anyone who would like to to tune in and listen to Misha's pods, I'll link them all in the pod notes as usual. But We'll move on now straight on to our first topic, which is, of course, has to be Champions League matches. Krasnodar kicked off the proceedings early on Tuesday as they fell 2-1 at home to Sevilla. The substitute Wanderson's goal was sandwiched either side by two for the visitors, with the second a heartbreaking 95th minute winner. So, David, do you want to quickly just run us through the game? Like, what were your general thoughts on how Krasnodar played? Um, first half wasn't great. Uh, obviously, they, uh, Sevilla scored a very early goal. The game had barely got going, and obviously Rakitic just smashes one in from outside the box, just out of nowhere. I mean, there's not, you know, nothing you can do about that. Even if Safonov was playing, there's nothing anyone could do. It's, it's a great strike. Um, and then the rest of the half was just just a bit nothing, just a bit nothingy. Nothing really happened. You know, Kresnov really couldn't get the ball forward. They were struggling uh, to bring the ball out of their own half. Um, Shappy, Shappy didn't have a great game. 
great first half, I'll admit. Um, and Cabela was just not getting any any of his magic going either. Um, so half time, half time was a good good thing for them. Uh, and they, you know, they've done well to stay in the game. You know, in defence, they defended pretty resolutely. You know, aside from the goal, they they didn't really afford any chances to Sevilla. Um, and the second half, they brought on Vanderson, and then suddenly everything sort of changed. They they were getting forward well. You know, they were creating some decent half chances, and you know, the goal they scored was really good. Um, then everything seemed to change immediately after they scored again. Um, they either they regressed or Sevilla stepped up. Um, you know, it was really, it was really looking tetchy for a while, um, but they, they were still doing all right. You, you you were worried for them, but they were they were defending, they were defending, and then obviously heartbreak at the end. Uh, I, I'm putting it down to, to Chernoff and, and Ramirez who who pushed up the field. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why they pushed up so wildly. It was the 94th or 93rd minute, and they both poor pushed up. Uh, I think it was Chernoff who was playing at left back at that point. And they, the ball was lost in, in mid-air and they were both well out of position. And it, it was unfortunate. Caio got the block and he just dropped straight back to the, to the severe striker who buried it. So a bit unfortunate. I think they probably deserved the point altogether. But, you know, it, it's, it wasn't good enough ultimately. It, it was a big defensive mistake at the end. Yeah, it was a massive shame. And it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a meme on... Russian football news where Hanu, our social media manager, had pretty much drafted a tweet that Krasnodar picked up a great point against Sevilla and then and then out of nowhere they, they scored and right at the end. So uh, props to Hanu for that one, for, for admitting to it and showing it, but jumped the gun almost too soon. Now, I've personally placed quite a lot of criticism on Kyle Pantelan of late, with this string of quite high-profile mistakes, particularly in the Champions League. Now, while David, you do tend to defend him a little bit more and maybe see beyond these mistakes at the longer-term potential and ability in spite of the errors. So, Misha, what are your thoughts on on Caio? Do you think that he's... Well, in a nutshell, I think it's a disaster. It's one of the <laughs> one of the worst transfers so far. Uh, he was not supposed to play as a centre-back, as, uh, as, as far as I know. Uh, he uh, he was well when when he was scouted by uh, Krasnodar. They uh, thought that he would be a defensive uh, midfield and he would play in the in the midfield. Uh, but uh, the situation with the injuries and with all the all the illnesses and the departures of uh, of the players uh, made it kind of a well. It's um, it's not his position, but he has to play there. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of questions to the uh, scouting department. If you know that uh, you have a problem with Kai, why wouldn't you um, back him up? Uh, well, they didn't, and now they have seven uh, back-to-back matches with uh, the crucial mistakes that led to goals and the loss of the points by Kai. Yeah, absolutely. And another one on top of that is is not just why they didn't buy somebody to replace Kyle, but why did they let Uros Bajic go in the summer? It, it was a mystifying decision, especially one of their stronger defenders with the ball. Now, I understand that Krasnodar, Musayev and Galietsky like them, the defenders to play the ball out from the back. They like them to be as good and as promising on the ball at progressing the ball of the pitch as they are defensively. But I just can't see 
Kyle being good enough defensively at this el- very elite level? There might be one um, explanation to that. This is the changing of the uh, rules. I don't know how to say it properly in English. We do have a limit for the foreign players. Now yeah. uh, we have a squad of 25 uh, players and there must be 17 Russian players, not more than eight uh, foreigners. And uh, uh, a lot of Russian uh, top clubs uh, had to decide whom to sell. Uh, that was a tough choice from uh, sometimes, and maybe uh, Spych wanted to to leave. I don't, I don't know, uh, but probably that was one of the reasons, actually. Yeah, definitely. You could see why they replaced him as Sorokin in, the, in, in that case, anyway. The one of the most young, promising defenders of, of course, Russian nationality in the in the league. Now, David, to put yourself on the spot a little bit here. Why do you think Krasnodar exited the competition so early? Is it the lack of experience at this level, which can be criminal at times, or is it perhaps merely down to the gulf in quality to, between Krasnodar and sides like Chelsea and Sevilla in the group? Um, I mean, I'm going to give him a bit of a break because of you know all the injuries and and uh, you know in the COVID cases they've had in the squad. You know, for the first three games they, they did not put out very strong squads at all. In regardless of you know the defense that you know uh, you had Sabua starting games, you had Spurtsian playing games. You know you do, you can't go into games with these kids. You know who who might be have good potential, but you know this is the Champions League. You can't rely on these guys, and unfortunately, they just had too many injuries at the wrong time again. It was the same last year where um, you know they were missing Klaas and, and Gazinski in the Europa League, and and they struggled. Um, but ultimately, you know, it was bad decisions made in the summer. Um, you know, the limit didn't help, uh, and they and they probably have made the wrong decision uh, with Spy at Jova Kayo. Um, you know, we, we've lambasted yeah. the limit a lot in terms of how it's uh, how it's making it harder for the top teams to compete into in Europe. And um, you know, I think it coming in the short. It was a very short summer as well. Um, you know, Krasnodar had had probably six weeks from the end of the season to playing their first qualifying game uh, against Pauk to try and trim their squad from, I think they had 11 foreigners last season down to eight. Uh, and they had to make a decision on who to who to keep and who to bring in. Uh, and they decided to, to gamble on Sorokin, Kayu and Martinovic, um, which, which has not helped. Um, you know, you'd have fancied them maybe to get you know, you know they did well. They they had good spells in all those games, which is the frustrating bit. Uh, even with their their limited squad, and you'd love to have seen them play full strength for the whole six games. Um, but ultimately, the the squad is too small, um, and the depth is not good enough uh, to yeah. to battle against these injuries. Yeah, absolutely. I I can't agree more. I think that the foreign limits, to be frank, is the single biggest biggest issue plaguing Russian football right now or one of one of them anyway especially from a structural point of view and we have mentioned that on the podcast and people have heard me drawn on many a times in my various rants about the foreign element so I will save everybody's time and patience right now and not do so but we will move on to Zenit who immediately after Krasnodar playing kicked off their game against Lazio in Rome. Now, Artem Zuba did score a well-taken goal for the for Blue-White Sky Blues, but 
However, Lazio did have a full strength side after a host of players all returning from uh, con- contracting COVID 19 and missing a couple of games. Uh, Lucas Leva, Chiro Mobile, Luis Alberto, Manuel Azzali, and many others all returned back to the starting lineup and into the team in general. And thus, one goal from Marco Pirolo and a brace by the aforementioned Dumobile put the game out of sight early doors. So, Misha, Sergei Semak's been under quite a lot of criticism from Zenit fans for the side's performances this season, and particularly in, in the Champions League. Do you think that's a, a fair critique from the fans? Well, I think so. Um, the the fans of uh, Zanid uh, got used to, well, a kind of a domination in the league uh, for um, quite a long time. Well, there were some some years when Zanid did not uh, didn't make it, didn't win the title. But the most powerful uh, money wise and football wise team has um, has for a pretty long time has been Zenit. So uh, they want a European success. Um, and two seasons in a row, and actually if we uh, go a bit deeper, we will get to the uh, to the uh, Europa League uh, when Zenit was uh, kicked out of the tournament by a, a Villarreal, a Spanish team that was struggling to survive in the, in the Primera. And uh, it it is just one more example that of um, um, you know of a very uh, of the controversy of uh, Russian Premier League. In the one on the one hand, it's very mm. competitive. Uh, there is a lot of intrigues uh, both uh, uh, for the title and uh, at the bottom of the uh, of the table. But the level is not that high. And when our teams have to play in Europe, they face absolutely, um, well, uh, it's weird for me to say that, but it's kind of uncharted waters uh, because they don't know how to behave. They are too slow. They uh, don't know what to do with the pressure. And for example, Zane was beaten by uh, Bruges um, badly at at home because they just didn't know what to do with the... um, with that kind of pressure. And uh, I think that Zenit fans are disappointed not only with the result, but with the performance of the players mm-hmm. that had to uh, to be the game changers. Well, they definitely are not now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think Zenit's problem is that while their side is, of course, world beaters in terms of the RPL and domestically, for sure, they, the composition of the side just doesn't really suits knockout football or at least this elite level of football that do they have no doubt have skilled players but when you look at say Lokomotiv who as a defensive unit are just an absolute machine uh, you look at some other teams you mentioned Bruges Michel where they, they their style and their pace on the counter out wide and up top is just something that's going to going to really affect teams now Malcolm excellent footballer Sada Rasmussen very very good goal scorer Zuba back to goal is unbelievable the ways they need to play and the composition of their team, I don't think really is that much of a danger for four sides. But I, I do believe that Semak has got his tactics wrong at times. And then that's coupled with the, the horrendous injuries they've had with all Malcolm, Zuba, Juliusi and Asmoon missing game time. It's it's kind of mixed together to the, the abs- an absolute worst nightmare. Um, Zuba's goal was well taken, but Misha, do you think, as some have suggested, do you think he's maybe past his best, as as people have mentioned that on social media and so on? And, and what were your thought, thoughts on the whole leaked video situation? 
Well, I'm quite sure that it did uh, impact uh, Zuba because he was, uh, after the World Cup, he was a kind of a superstar. You know, we don't have a lot of um, Russian um, sports celebrities with uh, 1 million subscribers on Instagram. It's quite a milestone for us. He was the the first footballer, for sure, Russian footballer, to, to get there. So he was a superstar. And uh, um, the two years after the World Cup, uh, well, did not improve uh, him in that position. He, uh, his, um, his performance uh, became well. Did not uh, go to the. Did not go to the uh, to another level, uh, and so it's um, uh, it's a bit weird. But uh, for, during the last uh, month, maybe maybe a year, um, there were even more haters than the true lovers of uh, Zuba because of his performance. And so I think that mm-hmm. when that video leaked. Uh, uh, it was kind of um, well, it was a bombshell actually for for everybody because he he was stripped of the uh, uh, captain band in in, in Zenit. He was not called in, uh, to the national team um, to, just to settle things down to um, to keep it low. Uh, maybe it worked, but I think that it's going to have some impact in future. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps on the on the reputation and how he's perceived in the wider country as a whole, for sure. And of course, I mean, Spartak, you see lots of Spartak fans on this various social medias who were not fond of, of Zuber in the first place. So I don't think very much will change there. But he, with Zenit, I have noticed that it seems to be, at least among the fans who aren't members of the Landskolona or the fan groups, mm-hmm. that they have kind of unified behind their captain to an extent. They've it seems like they are more in solidarity with him. The way that you're seeing some regular just Zenit fans celebrating when he scored that goal against Krasnodar straight after the controversy and, and again scored against Lazio. It's been quite nice to see them sort of back their captain and, and really unify and come together like that. But I must admit, I, I think his days are numbered on the elite level due to his age. Uh, David... While Zenit have been eliminated from the Champions League, do you perhaps see them making it to the Europa League knockouts at least in third place? Well, they've they've got to pick it up. You know, they've got uh, what Dortmund at home and, and Bruges away as their last two games. Um, you know, Dortmund's always going to be a tricky fixture, home or away. So, so you've got to look at the Bruges game, and obviously we we thought of that at the start of the year. We said the Bruges home game has to be a win, and it, and it wasn't. Um, it, it was it was a poor result. The squad the squad's getting back, getting back to full full strength. Um, uh, and you know me, I'm a bit of an optimist. I always like to think, you know, it can happen and it could happen. There's nothing to say is it couldn't go and get two wins, but I think it's very unlikely. Um, I think the confidence is probably quite low in the team, um, and all these things that have gone on with Zubra not helping him and probably not helping the squad in general. It's probably impacting them all. Um, you know, I, I hope they can, but I, I don't have a lot of hope <laughs> really. I don't, I don't see, I don't see them getting wins against Dortmund and Bruges away. Uh, you know, Bruges will presumably just defend. They will defend because they'll be in third place by, by that stage. Um, yeah. And you know, to see that the champions go out of, go out of Europe at the first stage is, is not good. Yeah, I must admit, I I don't share your optimism. I don't think they have a hope in hell of doing so. I think 
Dortmund is, of course, as you said, difficult game. I think Bruges' entire game plan is built upon exposing Zenit's weaknesses. And the main one of Zenit's weaknesses is that it's a team generally of geriatrics or older players in the towards the twilight of their career, or at least a lot of them who really struggle with the back, who are getting turned on the counter in defence, Rakitsky and Lovren, neither of them really like that. And that entire front three of Bruges is just laden with pace and trickery. And you showed that in the, in the first game when both goals came down that right-hand side doing Klugavoy in, in behind. And Zenit just didn't know how to deal with it. Hopefully Semak has learned because I think a lot of his long-term future is riding more so upon these European performances. Uh, the last of the three UCL games took place on Wednesday as Marco Nikolic's Lokomotiv travelled to Madrid to take on Atletico. They once again put in a staunch defensive performance and shithoused their old way to a well-earned point. They sit third in the group of death, two points behind Atleti and two ahead of Red Bull Salzburg. Now, Murillo has been the side's standout performer, in my opinion, in Europe this season. He's led the defence at times in the absence of Edran Troluca very well, and on Wednesday this form continues. And some got some stats here of Murillo's game. And on, he had 73 touches, of which nine clearances, two blocked shots, two interceptions. He wasn't dribbled past once by a single athletic player. He won 100% of his ground duels and had an overall index rating of 8.5 out of 10. Now, he was just a brick wall. So, Misha, uh, David, it's up there as a defensive masterclass in my eyes, just like, say, Rotter's famous matches against Manchester United all the way back in 1995. So how good do you, th- do you think that Murillo was in Loco's defence last night in general? Yeah, he, he was really good. It was It's a bonus to have Chorluka back as well. Um, you know, you didn't fancy having to play Rykovic again. Um, you know, granted, he, he did well when he had to come on as a sub last time. Um, but then in the league afterwards, I'm pretty sure he, he got sent off for two yellow cards in, in 60 seconds. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, it was good to have Chorluka back there and the experience of he, that he's got combined with... Uh, Murillo's athleticism and, and a bit of pace on him uh, worked, worked wonders, and he he was he was everywhere. He was fantastic again, um, and it, he looks like he's going to be just the next you know Brazilian centre back to to come to Russia, play for a couple of seasons, and then leave. You know, Becal um, from Cisco a couple of years ago was was one, uh, and you, you feel Murillo is is doing that, you know, doing enough to put himself on the transfer market for a bigger European side to come and pick him up. He, he, he was brilliant. Um, considering <laughs> considering Loco also missing Baranov as well. Uh, I just, it's, it's, you know, it's amazing how, how they're pulling these results out under Nikolic, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when Nikolic came, we just said, oh, you know, he, he was playing such boring football those first few games uh, at the end of last season. But it's the kind of football that's going to work in Europe. Um, and it has been working. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll give props to, to Kulikov, who, who's, you know, he's very inexperienced, but he's been doing a good job there uh, in centre mid covering Baranov, you know, especially with Mikheyev out injured as well. Uh, Kulikov's been doing really well. Um, so, yeah. I think a lot of this is down to, as you as you say, Nikolic and, and the way he sets teams up. And he's really getting been getting the best out of what is a decent, but to be honest, below average squad, especially at this level. And, the way they, they are defending and the, the tactics that he's implemented. Now, nobody would have expected that shift to the Christmas tree formation to basically, I think it was in reaction to, to Mankiev and 
Baranov's twin injuries, and it was to both limit Bayern and Antletti as much as possible, but also to to really stop Kulikov getting isolated, especially in these situations against uh, players like Thiago Alcantara on, on, in a 1v1 situation. Now, Nikolic has got history of doing this in the in the Champions League or the Europa League. And that not just at, at Lokomotiv either, but his his entire managerial career. He's obviously got the two draws against Atleti. And then when he was at, at Vidi, they reached the Champions League playoffs, drew, drew 2-2 with Chelsea and defeated Pauk twice in the Europa League. And at Partizan also drew 0-0 with Tottenham Hotspur. So this man really knows how to get a result at this level. We mentioned before that Krasidar lacking experience, Murad Masayev particularly so. You see it in, in some of the ways that he consistently set his team up in the Masayev, the Krasnodar way, that it was, to be honest, and the antithesis of what he needed to do. It was really uh, making things difficult for Krasnodar, whereas Nikolic, uh, like I said, and with the team that he's got, it just goes out there and gets what he needs to do. Uh, Red Bull Salzburg had 10 shots and goal against Bayern Munich, but lost 3-1. Lokomotiv only had one on target into, over the entire entire game. So, Misha, how do you think that Nikolic is doing in charge? And going back a bit further, do you think that Semen was the sacking Semen was the right choice in hindsight of Nikolic's results? You know, I have uh, a couple of colleagues, fans of uh, Lokomotiv, and they... Uh, they are, well, diehard fans. Uh, they say that they wish uh, Lokomotiv uh, um, fail uh, everywhere because they want uh, Nikolic to be sacked and all the board to be fired because of, uh, because of that thing, that, because of how they uh, departed with, with uh, Sermon. He's a true legion, legend of the club. Um, so I don't know if he could do any better maybe um i don't know if it was right or wrong probably the um how it was done uh, well that's maybe not the very best uh way uh to say goodbye to the legendary coach but um if we look at the champions league yes we do have the result the performance um well it's questionable but uh who cares until uh locomotive is still in, f- in in the fight to qualify to the playoffs who can imagine that that after four games in the group they would still have chances to to qualify to the uh, champions league playoffs um but look at the um at the russian premier league it's a disaster because they they are in the second half of the of the table they uh, have one of the poorest uh, scoring records. Only the teams in the relegation zone and maybe a couple more uh, have scored less. So they do have problems in the in the Premier League. I can explain mm-hmm. it um, by the different approach in uh, in different tournaments uh, when they play Russian. Uh, Premier League games, they dominate. This is one way of playing. And so, uh, and uh, they get vulnerable to the counterattacks, and so they concede. Uh, uh, Their opponents uh, have a lot of players defending, so it's not easy to to break the, the defense. And when they play in the Champions League, it's uh, it's vice versa. They have uh, abilities to defend. They have good players. They have veteran Chorluka. They have uh, Ignatiev, for example, who played 
perfectly uh, in, in Madrid. And all the team gave just everything they had. There's no question about the effort. Um, but did they have a lot of chances? Did they build anything? Well, not that much. Maybe it's uh, it's too much to demand uh, um, uh, domination against Atletic, uh, Atletico um, in their way game. But, well, the result, yes. The performance, it leaves some question marks. Yeah, I, I totally understand that. But I think when you're away to Atletico and you're coming there with injury issues, with confidence issues, selling your best player in the summer and behind the scenes, lots of controversy going on right now, of course, with the fans and happiness against um Kadzer and the, the the revolt and so on and the, the fan group act actively revolting against Nikolic and sending in the letter of complaints. I think the way that Nikolic has handled all of this on his shoulders and got his team to perform in what is right now, I think, rightfully the competition that should be prioritised ahead of the RPL. Mm-hmm. They, they've got the rest of the year to, the rest of the season to get back into the Champions League places and qualify again. They only have six games to get the massive amount of money that they need to, say, replace people like Leosha who left and... I think Nikolic is managing all of this perfectly. Could Sjoman have done that as well? Probably, yes, he could have. But with the greatest of respects to Sjoman, because he is a locomotive legend, and I think the, I, I agree entirely, I think the way that he was sacked was really highly disrespectful to a man who has been such a great servant of the club for such a long time as well and delivered so much every single time he's been there. But I think I do really think that Nikolic was... It, he was hired with one eye on the Champions League, looking at how Siemens sides really haven't performed at this level at in the Champions League before. So it's it is it's a difficult one to unpack, but I, I I'm personally fully on the the Nicolich support line of uh, more the more the merrier, and this is in. It leads on to my next question somewhat. Is I, I just Misha. sorry, guys. I just want to put it straight that I don't want to undermine the result uh, and the and the performance of the team. Of course, it's it's something special. It is, mm. uh, but we do have very different uh, locomotive during uh, during a week. Um, yeah. In uh, Champions League, for example, at home against Bayern, although uh, the team was uh, defeated, but uh, it was a it was a great game for for locomotive. They wanted to score. They had a lot of chances maybe not a lot but well some that's uh, they were playing against the best team in the world maybe so they did fight but at the, mm. the premier league games sometimes they lack some uh, i don't know what maybe motivation maybe something else i don't know but i, I i'm not saying that he's uh, failing his job no absolutely not yeah i think the the one thing they lack is a little bit of extra star quality in that final third to be honest it, it's especially when you get two results from what to be frank is a, a f- quite a lucky lucky penalty and a nil nil draw let's let's not forget that the the penalty was very lucky for Lokomotiv three weeks ago and then this was a nil nil so it is that star quality in the final third that they they really need but do you think that Krasnodar and Zenit could perhaps look to emulate Lokomotiv in hiring a foreign manager to try and guarantee a bit of success in Europe. I mean, of course, Zenit have tried this numerous times and 
the last time they did so with Roberto Mancini, it failed spectacularly. So, Misha, what, what do you think? Do you think that it's foreign coaches could be more successful for Zanit and Krasnodar or not? Uh, yes, definitely. But uh, I can hardly imagine it in Krasnodar. I can't imagine it in St. Yeah. Petersburg, but in Krasnodar, absolutely not, because the owner of the team uh, is very much involved into everyday life of the team. Sometimes he even... Well, I, I won't say that he... Um, puts players to the to the squad no it doesn't happen but he needs um a contact with the head coach he wants to talk to him every day maybe every night every morning uh every uh, every time during the day and uh, he has to speak to him in russian so it must be a russian coach maybe this is a kind of a um, well it's it's a kind of a dead end for krasnodar i suppose in in a long perspective because the they need to to make a step uh, forward. They have a terrific uh, stadium, maybe one of the best in Europe. They have a superb uh, training camp, uh, the youth academy, but they still have to to make some steps to become a a super club even even in Russia and a uh, serious power in Europe. Maybe foreign coach is one of those steps. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, With Krasnodar, you you mentioned that you as Russian football, they are kind of like the darlings of the league in the sense that everybody wants the rest of the league to operate in that way with the privatised ownership, pumping the money into the academy, into the training, into a proper way of playing and a proper way of doing things. But it's you sometimes I get the impression that Krasnodar maybe hold themselves back in terms of their development by their stubbornness to do things the Krasnodar way, if you, if you know what I mean, Misha? Um. Well, uh, you know, I think that they have made um, a lot of progress for the in the last uh, even three maybe years. Um, they became more confident. They are not um, scared of uh, being um, at the top of the league. Uh, they do know and they do understand. They do believe that they can win the titles. I think that uh, this season is um, is not the. Uh, Mm. Uh, we we should not judge uh, very harshly the, the Russian clubs during this season because it's well it's it's extraordinary because of all the situation all the COVID and uh, and this uh, the clubs uh, almost didn't have any preseason so they mm. just finished the previous season they had a two weeks of a break and then then the new season started so it's insane uh what about new uh, formation or something or uh, introducing new players so i just think that we have to um to wait a bit uh maybe till spring because well winters are long in russia a lot a lot of things can happen during probably we will see different uh uh, teams in uh, in Krasnodar in Lokomotiv, uh, probably. I hope so. So yeah, so let's see what uh, what happens when spring comes. Yeah, absolutely. And so we'll move on to our second topic of the night, and we had another round of RPL action at the weekend. And the biggest game of the weekend was, in my opinion, as of course the customary Spartak fan was Spartak versus Dynamo Moscow, and it was the one-one draw. Um, very much for large parts, not necessarily the most entertaining game of football, but it was at least two sides really going for each, going at each other and playing some nice attacking football in a derby, which you don't often see. 
And the two goals late on by Dimitri Skopinsev and Roman Zobnin were brilliant, really, really brilliant goals. But uh, Spartak have interestingly also rehired Dmitry Popov as the director of football. And today, Sergei Yegolov has reported that Shamil Gazizov may leave in the winter in what would be, in my opinion, a poor move. But for now, with Popov in place and then, of course, Gazizov there as well, could this be a p- potential conflict of interests? I mean, Fadun himself and his advisor, Zoleh Masalikova, are already in place and have lots in, 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 have lots of influence over how the club works. So, Misha, do you think that this could be a, a conflict of interests? What's, what's your thoughts on this um, appointment of Popov? It's, your reappointment. You know, all this situation is so spartacy because when <laughs> when Gazizov arrived, everybody thought that wow, that was a really smart move because um, Gazizov previously worked at a local team uh, at uh, in Ufa, and he and the team managed to survive having well one of the smallest budgets in the league, and they qualified mm-hmm. to the European uh, Cups. They almost um, kicked the Rangers out of the uh, of the competition so when he when he arrived everybody thought finally Spartak is going to leave a normal uh, European uh, club uh, like life well that didn't last long I don't know what's going to happen if he leaves I think it will destroy um, everything that uh, he has done uh, everything he had uh, accomplished and the the problem of uh, of Spadak is that there are too many advisors, too many whisperers around uh, the owner of the club, um, uh, Mr. Fedun. He's a rich guy, but he, mm, I don't think that he gets very deeply to the details of the um, of the game. Maybe he is good at running the 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 business, but you know you have to know some some deep insights, some details. He's not very good at that. And having too many whisperers uh, and advisors uh, sometimes do not allow you to choose and follow the mm, just the the course uh, and. There will be two. I I I want to be wrong. Uh, maybe I'm just too pessimistic about that. But I think <laughs> that uh, there will be strange transfers. There will be um, maybe sacking and uh, hiring uh, managers too often. I don't know what's going to happen. Everything can change. Everything can happen there. Gaziz yeah. seems to be a kind of a. Uh, such a stable guy that stabil- st- uh, stabilizes the situation in the club. Yeah, for, for a long time now, I've, I've basically lambasted Spartak behind the scenes for their continued craziness in the, at the boardroom level. And once again, this is an issue of this, as you said, these advisors around Fadoon, these apparatchiks, as we would call them, these men who are products of a bygone era who advise Fadoon to what they think is best for the club and what they think is always the same thing and they don't like outsiders being involved in Spartak be it the issue with Massimo Carrera being a foreign foreigner and not playing enough young Russian lads or now with Gazizov who's not of the Spartak fraternity they just need to really get over that and Fadoon needs to stop listening to them just the all these ears in his head and just focus on running the business above and letting Gazizov have the time have the flexibility and the money to do what he needs to do to 
to really develop at Spartak because for the first time in a long time, it seemed like there was a long-term plan developing at the club with the the system of play from the top level all the way down through the academy. The same with Gazizov, the long being appointed was a sensible option. It did look like everything was pulling in the same direction. And once again now, because of Fadoon and his crazy decisions, it's all just went haywire. And now Spartak are the big question mark again, as usual. It's there's just it's it's typical of a man who genuinely believed in a curse that they would never win the league under him until they actually did to do this. But uh, anyway, enough about Spartak because I think everyone gets sick of me going on about it so often. <laughs> but elsewhere, Ruben lost 2-0 against Rostov. Uh, former player Corin Bayarmran scored a brace against his former club. Now, he doesn't score often, but every time he does, he does it twice because last time he scored was also a brace in a single game for Rostov against Siska. So, David, how did Ruben play and how was the game in general? Mm, he wasn't good. He wasn't good. <laughs> um, obviously, Ruben... You know, we've, we've been playing really well this season for the most part. Um, but the, this last international break uh, killed us. Um, we had staff that had COVID. Huang Inbom was quarantined with possible COVID. Kvitsa had COVID. Um, Despotovic, I think, was quarantined also with co- with potential COVID. So that was like our four best players. Well, not staff but our three best players in Huang, Kvitsa and Despot. Uh, all missing and... The game against uh, Himki before the international break, uh, we also didn't have Despot, uh, and it was not good either. There, uh, that was that was our worst game of the season against against Himki. Um, but against Rostov, you know, we we, we started with no striker. Um, Makarov was playing up front instead of playing on the right, uh, and I actually cannot remember us having a single good shot all game. Um, you know, there was just no. There was just no real structure to the team there at all. Shatov, Shatov has not been good since he joined us. You know, he's he seems quite lazy. I think he's just happy to be to be playing and getting some money, but he's not really trying as much. He's not showing the quality that we know he's got. Um, Huang Huang definitely does better for us. Um, and yeah, Rostov, who haven't been the greatest this season. Um, you know, they, they just had two good chances. They built, built the chances well, got the ball to Baramian in, in good space, and he had two easy finishes in the second half there. Um, so, yeah, I'm hoping this weekend against Cisco, we've got a few of our players back. I know Huang uh, flew back to Kazan yesterday. Uh, Starfelt's back in training. Uremovic, I forgot about Uremovic too. He also didn't play. Um, he, he's back in training as well. So hopefully, uh, hopefully we can pick it back up after these... Um, two losses that we've just had um, because we, we were on for a good season until the until these last four, few three or four weeks. Now, he didn't start, but how has uh, youngster Kirill Kosarev played? Well, well, he's got some minutes for the first time in quite a while. Um, well, we had him and uh, Klimov as well, who, who'd been away been away in Belgium and France. He played for, well, he was at, he was at Monaco and he was at Cercle Bruges. Um, Kosarev, he, he he had a half chance actually. I, I do remember that because I I distinctly remember watching him specifically to see how he would get on, because Slutsky decided not to play either of those guys who were both strikers and, and to play Makarov uh, instead. Um, you know he he didn't have a lot of chances to get involved with the game. Uh, you know in in midfield we were losing all the battles. Um, 
And so he he was just really feeding off scraps and he didn't have enough time really to, to show himself. I know he did well in the cup against um, uh, Chernomonets uh, in Novorossiysk. Um, back in earlier in the season, he, he was apparently did better than even Ignatiev, who's been very disappointing for us. Um, so yeah, so it's not, not there wasn't enough minutes for it, for me to really sort of draw any conclusions on him so far. Yeah, and, and down at the bottom, Rotter drew nil nil with Ural, and uh, of course, RFN, RFN writer and podcaster Andrew Flint will be delighted that I'm just going to skip past that because, to be honest, it was the most boring game I've seen in a very long time. Uh, but Kinky, you mentioned David the one last week, and they actually picked up another massive three points. Uh, away to defeat Ufa and clawed themselves up to 12th and out of the automatic releg- and playoff relegation spaces entirely. Now, in truth, Ufa were probably the better better of the two for large parts, and they definitely played the best since they defeated Arsenal way back in August, but they just simply couldn't score. Uh, Shemaletinov uh, hit one off the woodwork, and then they had the two real close clearances where the ball was clawed off the line, but Kimki just they took their chances. Uh, Ilya Lantratov was brilliant in goal, and Trasheshkin is really showing some of that form that we all saw last season, the Fenerl, where he's just dictating the game and getting on the score sheet. I think he's been quite disappointed with him this season so far. And maybe because they're playing Ufa, who are Fenerl quality right now, that's why he stood out so much. But he had a really, really solid game. Uh, Ufa played well, but they lost again. And I really can't see a way of them getting anything from this season. Um, David, you also caught up to watch Krasnodar play Tambov. How, how did Krasnodar play in that one? Was it? Better than they have been in Champions League, at least? Um, yeah, it was better. Tambov uh, really didn't try much in that game. Um, they, they just played defensive block. Um, and Krasnodar were playing some good stuff. They just couldn't really hit the back of the net. Shappy, Shappy had a good chance. Ryzhikov pulled off a great save, um, considering his age. Um, you know, it was good stuff. I, I, was, I was hoping Wanderson would be playing, but they obviously kept him kept him uh, for the Champions League. Um, you know, they scored, scored an early goal and, and eventually that was it. They, they could have and should have scored more, really. Um, but it, it was a better performance and obviously finally getting a win in the league. Uh, you know, they've got a good run of fixtures coming up. Tambov this week, they've got Himki and uh, another easy fixture. I can't remember who against um, in the next couple of weeks. So they, they've got to pick up some wins to to make up for the poor form they've had recently. Yeah, and of course, there's still... All those off the pitch issues at Tambov for players not getting wages for quite some time and and threatening again to 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 refuse to play and refuse to train if they if they aren't paid. So it's really quite bleak for Tambov right now. No, not bleak. And the opposite of that, I think Andrei Talalayev is doing a stellar job, but quiet and quite under the radar at Ahmad. Uh, Bernard Barisha is in the form of his life. And Misha, how do you think that Talalayev's faring at Ahmad and? How was the two-all draw with Zenit at the weekend? Um, I think that uh, Talalayev is doing quite uh, quite a job there. Um, after the disastrous season, previous season, when uh, Ahmad had to fight for survival, it was uh, absolutely unexpected, and uh, it's not their uh, their position, of course. Um, the improving, I think that his uh, way of, his uh, coaching style is very suitable for uh, for Ahmad. Uh, he's a huge fan of discipline. He's always uh, publicly supporting his players, whatever. Uh, that's, uh, that's very good for the, for the 
atmosphere, I suppose. And it's uh, it's easily seen that they do fight. Um, sometimes, sometimes maybe they mm, do not play much, but they compensate that with the um, some kind of a fighting mood, and that's very good for them. I think that sometimes you can get. A lot of points from uh, from just being uh, very very competitive and rough, uh, tough, and sometimes even rough um, team. This is uh, the way that uh, all the teams uh, of Andrei Talalaeva playing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm really in- impressed by Talalaev tactically. He's when he went into Krilia the back end of last season. I mean, Krilia were flat. There was just nothing there, nothing going on whatsoever. But he really brought it back to basics. It was all about getting the the ball to attack as quick as possible. Very simple ideas, but it would, it worked for Krillia and it almost kept them up in the end. Unfortunately, they they are too relegated on the back of a technical defeat or defeat for for another side. But this this under 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 Akhmat, it's I mean Akhmat's of of age were all the same. Where it would just be inclined to keep the ball down, betting on their individuals in attack and individual quality, uh, combinations out the flank. And then now it's completely different. They're considerably more aggressive off the ball and they're able to adapt to their opponent much better. And they're not just holding it for the sake of doing it and keeping the ball for the sake of keeping it. They're really attacking with with prowess and every, every single sort of vertical phase and shift in the play is really stretching defenders and and Berisha, like I say, I, I think he's in the form of his life. And I can't remember seeing him so consistent in front of goal. Berisha's always had lightning pace and always been such a threat on the counter. But his sheer consistency in front of goal this season and in the final third, it just, just shows the confidence in that Talalayev has seen him as one of the key players and has molded a team around getting the best out of him. And I think he's doing a really stellar job. And it's it's nice to see Akhmat playing very aggressive and progressive football instead of the old very defensive and sort of lackadaisical stuff that he'd seen for so long under various managers uh, but we'll have to move on next and lastly our, our last discussion today is after a long discussion last week on whether or not the RFU should sack Stanislav Churchisov from his role as the Sponaya head coach the man himself is now back in the limelight this week so for the listeners who didn't know, Stanley gave quite an incendiary interview defending his current record as the national team boss of late and lambasted some of the younger players in his squad. Now, I will bear, if you bear with me, I will just read out some of his statements and paraphrase some. And, and of such, he said, the young players, Golovin, Chalov and Maranchuk, should show their worth to me. On the field, Zabalotny is far more useful. I'm better off with a talentless Zabalotny than I am with Golden Chalov. Continued on to say then, um, football is not only about numbers, there is intelligence, tactics and much more, I will say this. But whoever sprints more always takes a higher place in the standings. And then continued on about Safanov and Maximenka. These guys are getting more experience at youth level. I don't understand how playing the third choice keeper helps more consistent football. Now, there was you get the trend. There was a lot of comments like this and the internet almost exploded in reaction. Many have been calling for his heads now, who were previously quite undecided on the issue and quite conservative. Um, one of the players he personally criticised, as mentioned, was Chalov. And this did prompt Siska to actually publish a full statement on the issue. Now, Siska basically said that they were 
surprised by yesterday's statements um, that churches have made. It's already been true that a professional coach considers himself to be blamed for failure and defeat. But not only has Mr. Churchesov become personal, but considers himself entitled to offend people. This is not the first time this has happened in relation to our club. Now, they go on there and basically it's a statement attacking Churchesov back or more so defending themselves and defending standing by their player. Now, Siska were reprimanded for the reply, but they weren't the only ones to have voiced their displeasure at Churchesov's comments. Um, now, today, there's been rumours and reports that the RFU are considering sacking churches up, and Meta Ratings in particular have reported that they might be considering to replace him with Kurban Berdiev. Now, this is, of course, very early. It's just merely a rumour and nothing else at this stage. Um, I personally wouldn't hold much into that with the source it's coming from and the way it's, it's spread. But regardless, um, there is quite a lot to unpack there. And Myself and David, we covered in depth last week why we think, or I think anyway, that Stani's time in charge of Spornaya is nearing an end. But Misha, do you think that Stani should be sacked? And what are your thoughts on his comments in general? Um, <clears throat> first of all, I think it's a shame um, to for the head coach of the national team. It's not just a... A team. It represents the the country, the 140 million uh, people uh, of of Russia. I don't believe that all of us, all the all the population, watched, but a lot of people watched. Uh, you know, the, there was a phrase that really just I was struck when I heard that. The, uh, he was asked about the uh, disaster in uh, Serbia and Be- um, Belgrade. Uh, we lost uh, five nil, and we conceded four in the first half. Uh, nothing like that has ever happened to our team since the Russian Empire. So more than one hundred years, we have not conceded four during the the first half. So it was something. You know, the reply was that well, um, yes, the the team that came to Serbia. I'm I'm just trying to translate a paraphrase, maybe. Uh, it was uh, it was a team, and I'm responsible for it. But it cannot be fully responsible because it was a team that had to be um, that uh, th- there were players that came um, without. Um, we didn't have any uh, serious time for preparation, and so I was. Tr- Come on, you are the head coach wow. of the national team. You are responsible for everybody who you call up. If you are not sure, you don't do that. If you want to uh, have some experiment, all right. Come on, sure. It's it's Nations League. Yes. To, nobody, um, nobody says that we need the title, that we need to go to the A to the Division A. No. Uh, if uh, if you have your ideas, okay. Come on. But then he says that the players were too bad. And then he uh, he personally called them. That was absolutely insane. I cannot imagine um, how many minutes, for example, Joachim Löw or Gareth Southgate would uh, stay um, as the head coaches of their uh, national teams after the interview like that. It was a live interview on the national TV. Well, that's a disaster. That's a shame. Yeah, it's an absolute shame. That's the it's the best way of putting it. And it's just a sad state of affairs that you have the head coach of the national team and then 
the directors and of one of of some of the biggest teams in the league just going head to head in these hugely public statements and it's it's really indicative of this, the state of how football has been in the last couple of months or so I mean the, the Russian national team have been abject aside from the two first opening Nations League games this is the first time ever that we haven't had a single it's the first time ever we've had three Russian teams in the European group stages and also the first time ever that not a single one of them have picked up a single victory at the, at the halfway stage of the group stages it's really just an absolute shame and I think the the most galling aspect of it is is the, the comments regarding uh, Chalov, Golovin, and and Moranchuk. And Golovin and Moranchuk are, are not only are they under twenty three and young, these young players that he he mentions the young players not working enough, not being enough there, and blaming them for the terrible performances. But it just really sums up Cherchesov's mentality right now, and this is why. He is under pressure because he sticks with this clearly failing old guard when there are so many young and exciting talents who need blooded. He says that a lot of them aren't experienced. Well, how can you not be experienced if the man who picks you refuses to give you more experience? Every single thing that he said, it just comes back onto him. One more, one more thought. Uh, it, it has just, uh, just dawned on me. Um, Miranchuk's both of them play pretty well now at the moment mm-hmm. okay Alexei Miranchuk is is not a player is not a starting 11 at uh, Atalanta but he gets his chances he scores in Champions League he scores uh, against uh, Inter it's it's quite something uh, th- they play badly only when they come to the national team why well I suppose it's a question that um, the the head coach should uh, should answer, but he's avoiding. Um, and by the way, you know he's he's a sometimes he's a bully. He behaves like you know um, I don't know like like a hooligan or something. Uh, that's that's not a, a behavior for the for, for the head coach. Probably after the the World Cup, after the getting to the quarterfinals, uh, everybody thought that he's a kind of a, a messiah for Russia. Well, he he's definitely not. So I just don't know why somebody put the crown on his head. So it's. It's obvious that it's uh, that he'll he's losing the the, the control of the um, of the situation. I mean that the national team doesn't play well anymore. Yeah, absolutely. It's indicative of a man who's under a hell of a lot of pressure, and you'd have to wonder if he is going out and saying these statements to force the RFU's hand. Because if they come to an agreement of mutual consent, or if he resigns out of basically public pressure upon him, which has, of course, happened with Russia, Russian managers, the manager of the Russian national team before. And then he doesn't get the payoff. But if the RFU decides to sack Churchesov and terminate the contract, then he will get a payoff. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that this is exactly why he's doing this, but maybe he is sensing that this is basically the beginning of the end, Misha, do you think? No, I don't think so. I think that it's because because he... Well, this is the, the kind of a person that uh, he is. I remember him uh, as the head coach of uh, some... I, I, I might be wrong with the, with the team precisely. Maybe it was Dynamo Moscow, maybe before. Uh, he, he was as rude at the press conferences and uh, flash interviews as now. So this is just... The 
the way of uh, he communicates like that. He's uh, like, well, you know, you know how uh, Jose Mourinho, for example, reacts when he is frustrated. Um, he can't be rude. Um, so I think I'm not trying to compare them. No, no. Uh, just uh, trying to say that probably this is the the nature uh, the nature of his, of his. Um, and when the things go south, he's not ready to to respond. Um, there were millions of uh, um, of chances to uh, to go through all those hard questions in a in a smooth way to explain to okay maybe lie why not but just don't attack the players don't attack the journalists who are asking absolutely fair questions so that was just you know i would uh, it was so ah, it was not not a pleasant uh show to watch actually i'm so ashamed i, I agree with you though i agree um you know it's, it's his job to um to use the Moranchiks and, and to use Golovin. You know, they're, they're Russia's most talented players. They, they should be playing. Okay, and even um, if he, even if they are not available, okay, you are the head mm-hmm. coach. You are the one to, who, who has to find the way out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought actually the Moranchiks in the first half against Serbia were, were quite good. Like, um, so then when he took those two off and he left Zhirkov and, and Zabolotny on who, who'd been playing very poorly in the first half, I mean, we know now that Sobolev was injured, so that's why he didn't play. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if he was injured, call up a replacement. There's lots sure. of other strikers in the Premier League who, who can play there. Um, you know, Litsenko had his chance earlier in the season. There's plenty of, plenty of choice. And our uh, under-23 uh, team had a friendly at, uh, at this um, this international break. So, mm-hmm. okay, you could call up Chalov, you could call up Zuba, you could uh, uh, publicly support him. Yeah, and so if we move on to the other part of that, which is, of course, the rumours that a certain Kurban Berdyev may potentially be looking at taking over from the RFU. Uh, David, do you think this would be a, a sensible move and... What was his track record like for, for nurturing young Russians and, and youngsters in general at Rubin, especially considering the huge amount of these promising young Russians we have around right now? Um, I mean, I think last week on, on the, this pod or the other pod, um, I, I said that I wouldn't be surprised to see Badeev there um, just because I couldn't necessarily see them going for a foreign manager again. Um, but Badeev does, is very particular with players he wants like that's why he took players like Naboa and Cezanne Alice everywhere because he played exact they played exactly how he needed them to play for his style and it, it you know his style would not be good for Russia you know it would be more defensive um and and we know that there's times where it has worked and where it hasn't worked you know it worked well at Rubin to start with it worked well at Rostov for a period but then when he came back to Rubin it didn't work the second time so there's no guarantee that he's going to make it work at Russia with the players at his disposal. Um, he didn't always like younger players, but if they were good enough, he, he did play them. Uh, you know, he was the one who gave Sardar Azmoun his breakthrough, of course, uh, age mm-hmm. 17. So it, it would be interesting. Oh, I wouldn't necessarily like to see it, but it wouldn't surprise me at the same time. Uh, but... yeah. 
I, I don't think it would it would be good for Russia if, if they did hire him. No, I, I personally really, really am against this this signing, to be quite honest, this potential signing, to be honest. I was against it when we covered it, when he was rumoured to be taking over at Dinamo, when it was either going to be him or Sandro Schwarz, and it was like the Zazko Buvac against the advisors, as you all so often see in the upper echelons of these clubs. And, and once again, I will be against it here. I, I Don't get me wrong, I respect Berdia for everything he's done, particularly those first two. You mentioned it at Rubin and Rostov and the results that they made and the teams and the memories that he created there. It was all him. It was all encompassing. But I, I really, it, there is a huge difference between what makes a national team manager and what makes a successful club manager. And all of Berdiev's success is things that you can't do with the national team. Um, Misha, what, what do you think? Do you think that Berdiev would be a good replacement for Stani if of course the RFU did suck him well I think he might be a good coach if we talk about a very short period of time for example mm -hmm. if uh, he knows and everybody knows that he's uh, uh, the head coach only for the European Championship maybe I'm just um, it's a, it's a, I don't have any uh, insight on that I just think that it might might work but i totally agree with you he has always um um when he uh took charge of uh rubin and then rostov and then rubin again he has had his team with him uh the assistant coaches the administration guys so he does not he never came alone he always came with the with with um with his staff and they did they did give a result uh but it kind it uh, well it came with a with a price i don't think that it's possible in the national team uh you don't make transfers transfers in national team you do have only a couple of days before uh the game to um just a couple of training sessions so you cannot spend the whole week um training some some basics for some basic stuff um so i don't think that's it it's a good idea uh and i do believe that we need a, uh, um, a foreign manager we need a fresh fresh look uh on uh, yeah. on, on this on our football i assume yeah absolutely there's there is one interesting aspect to Berdeev and that he he has mentioned in the past about his what he calls a reboot and he mentions that in periods of time over his career, he has kind of rebooted and recreated himself. And when he was a footballer himself, he was actually a, a, quite a, a very um, technical playmaker and a very talented player. So very much an, an attacking man's attacker. But of course, as we all know, he's famous for like the most stringent of defensive teams. And he, he says that this was really a reboot. And when he went into into coaching he was really inspired by like the, the calcio and of like agri, agri osachi's milan team and and that's where he developed that that system upon and then he, he, he later on in his career he was quoted in saying that he, he took a break after rubin the first time in 2013 and then um he said that he wanted to to change his role and obviously he went from coach to executive i think he became vice president david wasn't it and then um, basically, he, he worried that he stagnated too much, and he, he, he then said that that was his second reboot, and then that his, his third reboot was after Rostov. Well, 
the third reboot mustn't have been a very good one because he didn't really change much about how he lines up his teams, about his tactics, about the way he approaches management, psychological side of the game. It's all very similar. He's just simply not as successful um, the second time at Rubin. And since then, maybe if he does come back, it could be another reboot. But I, I agree, Misha, entirely. I think it is time for a foreign coach and not just a big name, not just a like Capello. They got Capello because he was the biggest name at the time. Like when Zenit brought in Mancini, who doesn't really fit at Zenit, they, they got him because of the name. They, they need to do what Spartak have done it with with Tedesco and, and Dinamo with Sandro Schwartz, where they've not tired them because of the name. It, it's been a, a, a process where they can take time to build around and really solve some of these issues that the national team is, is suffering under, and not just in the short term, but in the long term. There's, 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 there's been long-term issues that the, of the national team have been the same ones for about five, six, seven years now, and they simply haven't been addressed because the RFU see, fail either, well, I mentioned last week, they either fail to see it or, or they choose not to because this World Cup from the face of it seemed successful getting through the quarterfinals and it was brilliant the world cup it was absolutely incredible but it wasn't because of a plan it was they stumbled from pillar to post and instead of actually trying to solve something got brought in the naturalization to try and fill the gaps in the squads rather than actually doing it in a longer term basis but yeah, I I, thought, I think you'll bang on, Misha, that in the short term it could be fine, but long term I, I, I really don't think it would be good either whatsoever. And with that, that's the end of the RFN podcast this week. And at least we had some great spectacles the last weekend during the games and, and another local defensive masterclass to keep us all happy because the, it's been quite a few scandals, controversy and poor performances both in Europe and around the national team right now, but Keep an eye out on RFN for all the analytics and the latest European fixtures, uh, the latest interview with our, and it's coming out on Friday in our social media manager series. We've also got some pretty exciting player interviews coming up and in the pipeline, but I'll keep you guessing on them for now. David, you got anything to promote this week? Uh, no, nothing to promote actually this week. I'll, I'll just uh, list my my Twitter, which is at RFN David uh, underscore David. Sorry, um, no, I haven't, I haven't written anything. Probably need to get onto that. And Misha, where can all the listeners find yourself and your work online? Um, yeah, yes, I do have a Twitter account and Instagram account. So yeah, that's true. See, uh, our listeners can find me there. Oh, perfect. Thank you both for joining me, and Misha. Misha in particular, thanks again. Uh, thank you, thank you. It was uh, yeah, it, it was not easy. Uh, the la- it was probably the first time when I was talking about football in English, not in a bar with, uh, among my friends. <laughs> So, um, uh, sorry again for my English. No worries, mate. It was brilliant. It was very, very, very insightful and very interesting. Thank you. This has been the RFN podcast. Goodbye for now. Его беги, точнее его удар, Но мяч берет в ноги решительный вратарь. Не напрасно футбольное поле Самых ловких и смелых плечок. Здесь нужны тренировка и воля, Быстрота, увлечение, расчет.